placebo, nocebo. They're just a reflective facet of that same neuroeconomic decision-making process. Placebo, nocebo is when subjective experience changes from acquired information or a reinterpretation of information. Right. So I get some information and it's just changing that neuroeconomic decision that I'm making. So from that perspective, you can see how stress, how um, placebo, nocebo, and how your individual mindset around how you interpret this challenge all interact to regulate the background context upon which we overlay the eventual intervention. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on your favorite platform, and if that platform allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get the info out to as many people as possible. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors. This episode is supported by Josh Funk and the crew over at Rehab to Perform in Maryland. Rehab to Perform is a physical therapy company that is geared towards developing the clinician of the future. Their comprehensive DPT internship program will prepare the future graduate to make an impact in the world of sports and orthopedic physical therapy. For more information, check out the link in the show notes. This show is also supported by AP Analytics. AP Analytics is a boutique data consulting firm specializing in creative and low-resource solutions. Andrew Patton, the founder and former Clinical Athlete podcast guest from episode 44, has 10 years of experience working in human performance and general data-driven scientific consulting. If you need a question answered or have a problem and don't know where to start, head over to apanalytics.net or email Andrew directly at andrew at apanalytics.net. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, I'm joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is a clinical athlete, continuing education director and coordinator, and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He's also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. This is part two of our conversation with John Kiley about all things placebo in sports medicine and athletic performance. Enjoy the show. This reminds me of the first conversation we had, and one thing to build on this, 
one thing that you said during that conversation that resonated with me quite a bit and something I come back to all the time with my athletes is you stated with your athletes when it comes to certain responses that your biggest job as a coach is to remain consistent, that you respond in a particular way and that's that's how John rolls. Like the Athletes know when they come to you with X, Y, Z, whether it's a question or like you're talking about reframing or tweaking something that you respond in kind all the time. Like this is just how you are. When we start talking about prolonged treatment or prolonged interaction with our athletes or with our, our patients and clients, this is what all that always makes me think of, of that statement that when you start and you start with that plan initially with your athlete and you decide to make some tweaks and you decide that to, to bring them in on it and give them ownership, then we have to stay consistent with that to continue to build that positive effect as opposed to, okay, so we had a strategy session and this is something that I see pretty frequently. We have a strategy session and then it's, it, people think that all of a sudden that process is automated mm-hmm. or that, uh, you don't necessarily have to be consistent beyond that point. You have to constantly breed that to continue that, that positive trend or the, the effect that you intended. Does that, does that make sense? Or am yeah, I right? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a very important point. And I guess, yeah, I agree with myself <laughs> in, in, in terms of what I said. And I, I guess that comment came from experience where I've seen coaches collapse when it comes to big events and stress is contagious in a big way. If you have someone that is part of your inner close team, there's a responsibility in all of us to hold it together. And that, I won't tell you stories, but I've seen some bizarre things that are not good practice. Um, Yeah, okay. Wanted to jump in. Um, going back to what you said earlier about how we need to, or at least want to make sure that our athletes or our clients um, have the belief that what we're going to be doing moving forward is for them and it will benefit them. And it's salient to what they ultimately want to do, whether now or sometime in the future. Um, I think that's, that's extremely important. And you also mentioned how it's extremely prevalent to have uh, to not have that, you know, happen very effectively in the sports science world. I think it happens still. It's very rampant in the rehab world too, where if healthcare professionals, probably irrespective of professions, explicitly or implicitly might act in such a way as to say, you know, I'm the professional. I know what I'm talking about. We're going to do this and you're going to feel this way. And that's how it's going to be. And if there's one thing that we can say pretty confidently about working with humans is that it's messy and uh, good luck trying to accurately predict things with any degree of consistency because you're probably not going to be able to. So one thing that I found extremely valuable uh, in the clinic as well as working with my athletes is early on and then and periodically throughout the process, just coming back to um, or telling them that I really thrive on transparency and good communication. And if there's ever a time where they feel like we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing or that we're not doing something that we should be doing to tell me about that, because I want to have that conversation and be able to pick their brains about why they feel that way 
and then how we can work together to weave that into the overall plan. And I think that, I mean, my clients and patients could tell you better than I could about whether that's effective or not, but I think that's at least one way to try to mitigate the risk of me defaulting into acting like I know everything. Um, I try to check that in myself regularly. Uh, and I also come back to something that you said in that podcast we recorded earlier about how you, you second guess yourself as to whether you're as plugged in as you feel. And I try to remind myself of that and just take steps to try to, uh, confirm or, or correct what I think to be true just by asking or talking to the, the, the client or the patient. But I think that, uh, yeah, we probably get a lot further and get a lot closer to where we want to be if we, if we have that effective communication and, and, um, make sure that the, the client thinks that we're heading in a good direction for them. Cause that's ultimately what it's about. It's not about us. Well, I guess just to underline that if a belief that I have had an operation on my knee can reduce knee pain as much as actually having an operation on my knee, you know, belief is a, a, a powerful thing perhaps the most powerful thing in, in our world, you know, and if we can't get trust, belief and buy-in from whoever we're working with, we're tying our hands behind our back. But certainly in my world, we've put very little influence, or sorry, very little emphasis on that. We've assumed that if I'm the coach, you know, again, you're, you're just the body. You don't need to believe, you just need to do and that is again, it's toxic. It is, and it's it's not in any way evidence led. Um, I guess there's um there's one other thing I'd like to touch on if you don't mind, and that is, I started off saying there's what we can do and we can design, and what 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 I mean by design is we can to some extent, manage the signals that clients, athletes are detecting. Now, that can be in our environment. We can have an environment that we think is a, is a positive, productive, um, uh, motivational environment, whatever that means to you. And these things matter. They're not signals that are picked up necessarily overtly, but they're, they're signals that are picked up. And, you know, there's lots of studies. If you're working on a laptop and there's a computer open next door to you with a dollar sign on it, you're going to be more cutthroat in your interactions with other people, for example. Silly little things that just say that, you know, what's around us actually matter. We, we don't necessarily know how to manipulate them totally, but environment matters. Consistency matters. Um, in terms of how we present... Uh, and in, in terms of what the athlete expects, really, there's no there's no untoward surprises. There's consistency here. Um, I think communication is a huge one. How we communicate with the athletes, how we. If you have a young athlete, you don't want to be spending an hour every week educating them because they don't want that. But what you can do is. At the start of every session, I have 45 seconds to get an educational input into the athlete. So today's session is, here's why we're doing this exercise, bam. 
two days time I'll do a different exercise or I'll do something like that but you can farm it out in very spoon you know bite-sized chunks because one of the conventional arguments against this is oh it takes too much time I don't have that type of time I'm running a squad of 20 athletes whatever it is but in effect that that's kind of a cop-out there's always a way to do it especially if you have regular contact um Okay, so there's that fostering of understanding and belief and the portrayal of, I am on your side, I have got your back, I do have your best interest in heart. And I think key to that is us, us actually being genuine about that. Uh, and not, because it does happen a lot, certainly in my world, that people try to play athletes a lot by being insincere with them. But to me, it may work in the short term some things, but it is not a, a long term strategy. And people, people see through people that aren't that, that aren't authentic over time. Okay, so there's a whole load of things that we can do: communication, education, uh, setting up processes that are consistent. That, as you said, extract information, extract opinions, modulate, show that you care about those opinions by by weaving them into the fabric of the, the training processes. Okay, so what can the athlete do? The past couple of years, there's actually some really interesting research, which tends to fall under the, the name of kind of mindset research. Now, obviously, it's a very broad term, but what mindset means in this context is it's kind of the lens through which you look at a particular phenomenon. So mindset isn't one thing for all your life. Mindsets are context specific. So I might have a specific mindset about squatting. I might think, oh, well, you know, I, I hurt my knee that time 10 years ago and have a little bit of negativity about squatting. Oh, Jesus, it always hurts my knee and it winds it up and I need to be careful and I'm not looking forward to it. That, for example, would be a mindset about squatting. I have this set of beliefs. I have this kind of emotional reaction that's positive or negative to it. Does that, does that make sense? So, so it's it's this frame through which I understand the concept of squatting. Now, I know that we had a chat beforehand. So did I mention the milkshake study in this podcast? Or, yeah, it was beforehand. Okay. So essentially, this is how easy it is to change a mindset. Uh Research done in Harvard the past couple of years, two shakes, same calorie intake or content, same everything. One is put in a container labeled indulgent. The other is put in a container, I forget the exact wording, but let's say it was healthy. Connotations, tasty, right? Fatty. Uh, tasty, fatty, high calorie not tasty, not fatty, low calorie. That's the only tweak. <laughs> Give them to people. People who drink this one release a different set of digestive hormones in different, con sorry, not a different set, different concentrations than these people. Now, that takes a little bit of getting your head around. Now, an interesting argument off the back of this is you go into a restaurant and you look at the healthy options, you know, 150 calories, uh, a spinach leaf with a broccoli rubbed up against it. <laughs> you know, uh, 
and you're not going to be satiated by that. I'm actually not making this point well. The point I was making is sometimes the labeling on these things is counterintuitive, is counterproductive. We would be much better looking at healthy food as uh, if we could kind of change our mindset to look at that as more indulgent. Maybe a better example. Sorry, I've totally crashed and burned on that one. Maybe one more example. Another study. How can I change someone's mindset about stress? Two groups. One group, short educational input, short, like five, ten minutes. Stress is debilitating. Second group, uh, stress is, uh, is a positive. Stress sharpens your cognition. Stress makes you more able to handle challenge. Change people's mindset by giving them five, ten minutes of information. Then put them through a stressful event. And again, the chemistry that falls out of each group is completely different. The negative group get what they expect. The group that think that have the mindset that stress is a negative thing get what they expect. The negative consequences of a stress response. The group that have the more positive mindset in relation to strength, uh, stress, get a different set of consequences, a more uh, positive, productive set of consequences. Now, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up, and I know I'm laboring over it, is that we kind of have that capacity all the time to shape people's mindsets. And we should consciously be trying to do that. And I know we've kind of talked a little bit about education and communication and in a targeted way, if we can shift those beliefs, we're effectively changing the, the foundations upon which we're then intervening, be it through a, a rehabilitation exercise or a training program or, or, or whatever it may be. So in a desperate attempt to try and pull these flapping around strings or strands together, I guess what I'm suggesting is there's this we're embedded in us is this means of performing these neuroeconomical calculations is it a good time is this a safe environment is this a good time to heal yes or no stress is Negative stress is when I perceive uh, I can't cope in this environment. I'm out of my depth. I need to flood my body with um, alarm, the, the, the chemicals of uh, you know that signal alarm and get me ready for an emergency. Also, those same chemicals are going to inhibit healing because healing isn't a priority now. It's survival. Yep. Placebo, nocebo. They're just a reflected facet of that same neuroeconomic decision-making process. Placebo nocebo is when subjective experience changes from acquired information or a reinterpretation of information. Right. So I get some information and it's just changing that neuroeconomic decision that I'm making. So from that perspective, 
you can see how stress, how um, placebo, nocebo, and how your individual mindset around how you interpret this challenge all interact to regulate the background context upon which we overlay the eventual intervention. Right. So maybe you can tell me if this is uh, an appropriate interpretation or, or illustration of, of how we might apply it. So say in whether it's rehab or, or um, athletic training, let's say we're dealing with an athlete who's currently dealing with, with some sort of pain or has a history of some sort of pain. If, if we act to tell the athlete, hey, we, you, you might experience this pain as we do X, Y, and Z, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because, or we illustrate how even if they, they get pain doing something, that doesn't mean that it's a loss. It doesn't mean that, they're, that they've damaged themselves or that they've screwed up somehow necessarily. It's just information for us to take in. And if they don't have pain, great. They have the capacity to handle what we expose them to. We have reason to think they could probably handle that maybe a little bit more. So we're making progress, getting closer to where we want to be. If they have pain, that's also okay too, because it's giving us information about where their current tolerances lie. And it gives us opportunities to try different things, to try different strategies, to tweak what we're doing. Maybe we change the exercise, we change volume and intensity, or we change the range of motion or something like that. But by telling the athlete ahead of time, we're not losing either way. Am I right in, in thinking that we're attempting to change their mindset, in this case, around pain? And then by doing that, hopefully we put them into a place where they're, they're less likely to, uh, to feel like they need to launch this, this response, which would be more akin to a really dangerous situation. And if their mindset's changed, they're less likely to perceive it as being quite so dangerous, which then affords them the use of more resources to direct towards training or towards other things as opposed to having to to implement that really costly uh, danger response. Am I somewhat on the mark there or am I off? No, no, I think you're absolutely on the mark. And, and I suspect that we'd all have maybe similar beliefs around how we could do that in terms of positive but honest messaging um, finding finding a bit of purchase in terms of we can do this pain-free, now let's expand it, Let, let's add on stresses or stressors and so on and gradually expand your functional ability. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with anything you've said there. Um, I, I guess what I find interesting about the things we've kind of pulled into this conversation and, and there's been quite a few is that they do all tie together. I know it's not tied together perfectly clearly, at least in this attempt, but you can see how things like that sometimes seem a little bit amorphous or a little bit fuzzy, placebo, nocebo, stress, interpersonal relationships. You can see how these things are, are just fundamentally and we spend so much time about on design or at least I have in my life so much time on design and thinking to myself oh yeah I'm kind of 
I'm really good at designing good exercises that work. And then you see something like that, the, the, the research coming out in the surgery and you think, does it matter? Should I just really be someone who promotes positive belief and is that as good? Now, obviously, I think we'd all agree that you need a bit of both. OK, it's never going to be the mechanical side doesn't matter. It's just the acknowledgement that there's, there's overlap and integration here and we just get tripped up because we want to put things in buckets. It's physical intervention. There is no physical intervention. Everything is a physical, a psychological, a social, a neural, yada, yada, yada. So I got something bouncing around in my brain and I want to put it out there to hopefully I, I start connecting some dots. So you, you mentioned economy and I want to use the milkshake thing as an example. So in most economic models, spending early tends to be cheaper than spending late. So like buying an airplane ticket. If you buy a ticket early, it's going to be cheaper than it's going to be if you do it later. When we start talking about survival, if you preload a response, it's probably going to cost you less. Or if you start the process early, it's probably going to cost you less than if you allow a pathogen in and now all of a sudden you have to fight it. So when we start talking about mindset, to me, it connotates setting up a prediction. So we talk about predictive processing quite a bit. If we tell somebody that this shake is healthy and it tastes bad and it's low calorie and we tell someone that this one is indulgent and high calorie, we are setting up a prediction because they've already experienced both of those situations. So now they're going to you know, drink the indulgent shake and we're going to get a physiological response based off the prediction that we've set up for them physiologically because that cascade's already started because economically – Energy-wise, it's cheaper. Does does that make sense? We've set up not just a mindset and a belief system, but we've also set up a prediction cascade that now that athlete or that individual will go through because it's more economically viable naturally. I might just be completely rambling at this point, but that no, makes I, sense in my brain. Okay, well, it, it makes sense to me as well. And that's probably something I should have mentioned earlier, but the more you look at these phenomena. Uh, and I'm, I'm tempted to mention coordination as well because um, I think about that quite a lot as well and our brain is really it is an anticipation machine it, it's, it's all about yeah it, that's it's that's what it's all about and it, it's not so much as what's happening now but it's more in terms of making decisions based on what I think is going to happen and how I think I'm going to feel now, that's relevant because that is, you can modulate that, not totally, but you can influence that. You can tweak that. And obviously, that's what you do in relation to, you know, pain as, a, as an obvious example. How can I, how can I change how, how that's been anticipated? By adding a constraint or something like that, yeah. Or it could be just, you know... Again, finding a range at where which where your your pain is very manageable and gradually increasing the range or increasing the load or increasing the volume or, or doing something to expand and to get a sense of control over what you're experiencing. And or 
the realization that well I'm always going to have that pain so just I just need to get out of my life and stop trying to think that being pain free is a normal human condition hey guys Quinn Hennick here Consider this a little brain break from the mind-blowing placebo conversation that we're having with John Kiley. We wanted to let you know that we will be looking to begin scheduling our 2020 weightlifting and powerlifting certification. So if you know of a willing facility who would like to host a clinical athlete barbell certification, have them email events at clinicalathlete.com with a subject line of seminar host, and we will send all details. Alternatively, you can head over to the Clinical Athlete website and check out the hosting details in the events tab. And just another quick shout out to our show sponsors. Rehab to Perform is a physical therapy company that is geared towards developing the clinician of the future. Their comprehensive DPT internship program will prepare the future graduate to make an impact in the world of sports and orthopedic physical therapy. For more information, check out the link in the show notes. This show is also supported by AP Analytics. AP Analytics is a boutique data consulting firm specializing in creative and low-resource solutions. Andrew Patton, the founder and former Clinical Athlete Podcast guest from episode 44, has 10-plus years of experience working in human performance and general data-driven scientific consulting. If you need a question answered or have a problem and don't know where to start, head over to apanalytics.net or email Andrew directly at andrew at apanalytics.net. You can also check out that link in the show notes as well. And now, back to the show. John, sorry I'm about to do this to you, but I have something that's, uh, <laughs> I have a question. Um, you must be running out of questions at this stage. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No. With a sorry, this is going to be good. <laughs> I'm in. Let's see. Well, I was going to bring it up earlier, but then we started to go into actual useful practical information, and I want to bring it back to the nebula sphere. Okay, so I'm sorry. The nebula sphere. <laughs> go for it. Um, <clears throat> back to the original stress model by Hans Selye. Anim- animal models. Animal models. But in the roller coaster example we made a dichotomy now it's a false dichotomy but just for the just for the sake of creating a mental model to wrap our head around emotions and then cognition am i correct in thinking about emotions as kind of that daniel kahneman type one thinking in which emotions are that that initial visceral reaction that maybe all or many men mammal species have where it's it's fear or it's whatever those innate those innate emotions that come before cognition where we can actually that type two thinking where we can actually think about it is when you when you mentioned emotions versus cognition is that kind of where you were going with those two things emotions are those visceral first initial reactions whereas cognition is that meta that meta thinking where we can actually think about our emotions yeah, um, so I, no, I wasn't thinking about it in that context. I was thinking about using the word emotion. Uh, so let's say there's, there, there's a dial, there's a needle in there, and that needle is going between I am in danger or I am safe. Yeah, I'm at risk, I'm secure. And it's taking in, uh, this is kind of midbrain basal ganglia type as much as you can pinpoint a place my reading of the research 
um, detecting all signals, most of them conscious, but some subconscious signals, and deciding, okay, how am I going to allocate resources? Am I under threat or not? And that dictates how I allocate resources. Uh, what's a good example? Um, yeah, and in a sense, and again, from the, the papers that, that I have read, that I have found most convincing here, suggest that that kind of emotion where it's just a, a sense of security or not, that that is the initial kind of first nudge that sets off that cascade of I need to protect or I'm safe here, I can I can release resources. Does that make a degree of sense? But 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 I wouldn't equate it to Kahneman's type one, type two. Okay. Because what I'm really getting at here is I'm trying to make a distinction in my mind between humans and animals. So as as we've set up the construct in with placebo, is there a is there a placebo effect in non humans? Oh yeah. I I, I well I don't the danger of being on a podcast is sometimes people assume you're an expert and, and obviously that's not the case as you're finding out. But oh yeah, I would think placebos in, in animals, of course. And if you think about Pavlov and his dog, Pavlov just had to ring the bell and the dog started salivating. So Pavlov, by ringing a bell, changed the dog's physiology. That's To, to me, that's pretty much the same thing. So yeah, I, I, I think there's absolutely placebos because, again, Placebos, for me, they're just a reflective facet. They're just a reflection of this wider phenomenon that is, we are evolutionary wired to say, am I safe or am I not? Uh, am I not? Placebo, a doctor hands you a pill, you feel, I am a little safer in my environment. I do not have to be so anxious about this. That changes how you're interpreting the nociceptive signal you're receiving. Your pain goes down. But it's all back to, it's a, an evolutionary survival strategy and it makes perfect sense. And I think once you're aware of it and have thought through it, it's so sensible that it seems silly to think that evolution didn't wire us like that, didn't wire us to make those predictions. And if I get a signal, or sorry, if I get a lot of negative signals, then yes, I am going to be highly a highly anxious person. Or, you know, if I have those those genes and those early life experiences, I am going to be anxious because it makes sense. Because I feel I'm in a threatening environment. So this is where I think working with humans makes things so much more complicated. It reminds me of the book from Robert Sapolsky, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, where we're all we're all kind of making those those predictions, am I in a safe environment or not? Can I allocate resources to this or not? The difference with, with us as humans is the ability to think about our thinking and to perseverate on things is that at least I feel clinically that mindset can shift drastically and repeatedly over the course of a process. So somebody can feel comfortable in the clinic and they and, and they're uh, comfortable with your answers. They're comfortable with the plan. They're signing off on the plan. They understand. You feel like you nailed your education. 
and then they can go home and talk to a family member or think about their situation a little bit more. And all of a sudden that mindset can shift and that buy-in can kind of uh, almost erode overnight. And, and that could manifest into coming in the next session in which they weren't compliant with their home exercise program, or they came in with a bunch of new concerns after thinking about it or after doing some quote unquote research on their own. And so it just may, so I'm just kind of thinking about how the, the complexity of this whole thing and how we reiterate on the show a lot where you're going to have to stay on it just because the person feels comfortable and you feel like you've made that environment safe now doesn't mean that's going to be the case tomorrow and vice versa as well. Well, absolutely. And I think, and maybe go, go, going back to something that Jared said earlier, I think we constantly need to be rebooting and recalibrating uh, and reaffirming communication and calibrating our mindset with the patient athlete's mindset around whatever we're trying to achieve. There needs to be that calibration. I'm, it, it's obviously complex and it's obviously hard and we see this all the time. You know, one type of therapist suits one type of person, but maybe not others. I see it, you see it like coaching of individual sports a lot. A lot of athletes bounce around between coaches. And there is a trend, I think. This isn't empirically proven. Feel free to shoot it down. But sometimes you move to a new coach and again, you know, the Hawthorne effect. A change gives you a little a little bump. You get a little improvement. That bump promotes belief. This coach has something. They, you know, they got an extra point one of a second out of me. That gives you another little bump. So I think you can go to a coach that does exactly the opposite of what we recommend. Uh, and maybe they're very dogmatic. But if it's an Olympic Games for me and I'm coming to someone and they're saying, I will get you in world record shape in six months. Fantastic. And they can placebo by misleading me all they want. And maybe I'll get there. But that's over the short term. Over the long term, it's not a sustainable strategy. So there is a pattern in a lot of individual sports of going to very dogmatic, uh, believe in me, guru type coaching. But then finding that you, uh, uh, after a short honeymoon period, the faith, the belief, the trust go because the processes aren't in place. The honesty isn't in place. The uh, the calibration of mindsets isn't in place. So it's not a sustainable strategy. It's a short-term strategy. I think, well, all I can do is give you what I've arrived at, and that is, it's complex. But I need to provide... I need to provide some degree of certainty to the athlete. I can't be awash with doubt all the time. Because mm -hmm. belief, belief is the bedrock. <laughs> belief is the springboard. So I, I, I need to give some belief. I don't have to give, give that belief through, through bullshit or, or showing them my CV or telling them how great I am. I can just do it by 
being diligent, being rigorous, having good processes in place, having good communication loops in place, listening to what they say, factoring in what they say, pushing back, you know, not being a, a pushover, just being a good, diligent technician um, and building faith and trust that way. And I think that's, you know, making how you operate a reflection of you and how you, you think things should work and being consistent in that and being diligent in that uh, and being, you know, the predictability we talked about, presenting in a way that isn't erratic. I mean, you don't want an athlete going, oh, I wonder what coach is going to show up tonight. Is it the screaming, anxious guy, or is it my best friend, or is it, you know, coaches who wear all different hats depending on mood? You know, it's the, it's that consistency. I think that's fundamentally important as well. Yeah, just to jump in quickly, um, I think that um, the recalibration point. I know I said it earlier, and you said it just now. Uh, I think we talk about it with, or we've we've talked about it. Um, at some point previously on the podcast about how the athlete that we have now is not the same athlete that we had two months ago because they've had a series of experiences, whether it's the training that they've completed or the thoughts that they've thunk or, uh, you know, all these things that they're, they're going to be distinct similarities for sure, but they're also different. So therein seems at least to me to lie the, um, the reason for, the necessity of, of checking in, you know, and um, as far as a rebuttal about it taking too much time, I mean, you made a great case for it not needing to, but even if it did, uh, I would think that we should or, or would make time for the things that we think are most important. And if we figure that, making sure that the athlete believes that they're still on the right track, we will make time or need to find ways to ensure that happens. Otherwise, we're shooting ourselves in the foot from the outset, it seems. I think that's a good point and I guess we we operate in different contexts so mm. mistakes I've made uh, again as I said at the start worked a lot with athletes who persistent injury over a lot of years okay but held together by you know tape and just trying to knock out another season type thing or uh, another uh, games So the mistakes I made were being too fluffy, too touchy-feely. Well, we could do this, but we could do that, and we might be able to do that, and, well, really, there's any amount of things we could do. That's a bad message. It's too open. It's So what I tried to do now was say, I think we can either go A, B, or C. Mm-hmm. Any of those particularly appeal to you, or anything you, you, you see anything against? No? Okay, boom, let's do that. So it's quick, it's curtailed, and I might allow myself three minutes at the start. And this is something that for someone in my trade isn't normally done. I need to think about what are my key questions at the start, and then what do I do off them, and then what's my plan off that. So it's not this conversation that is cognitively challenging for the athlete. So suppose you're in a, a training camp, two sessions a day, two meetings a day, and then they have to do a rehab session with you. And you're asking them all these other cognitively ch- challenging questions. Yeah. I don't think that's good 
you know, I don't think it's good for us to be too open there. So I think it's constrained choice, but then trusting that we'll have enough contact, we will evolve this. So it's not totally open choice. And that's certainly a mistake I've made. So I think there's the no choice, do what I say. There's the touch with Sealy, we can do whatever we want, whatever you think, what would you like to do? How does that feel? And then there's the, the kind of baby bear's porridge that sits in the middle. Um, again, a lot of pushback you get. These ideas are more in squad settings where we have 50 minutes. We have to knock out a session. We can't be talking to the guys, you know, or to girls, whatever. We just need to tell them what to do and get on with it. But I think it's really easy to wheel a whiteboard in there, have your three key, key messages up. This is the purpose of our session. Uh, this is the feedback from last week. Bish, bash, bosh. Three minutes. Boom. On your boy, off you go. We, we can do it. We can yeah. do it. We just need to be aware of the potential benefits, aware of the, the buttons to press and the levers to pull and the things to avoid. And then we, we design to get maximum benefit. Well, thank you for, for saying what you just said, because it reminded me of a thought that I wanted to put out before, but then blanked when I started opening my mouth, um, which is having confidence even in the face of uncertainty because you're right we need to to have some direction to offer to our clients otherwise we're probably not going to get very far um and harkening back to what you said uh some time ago people can see through bs you know um so i think that we can have the the honesty and the humility to tell people i'm not really sure of exactly what's going to happen or if they ask us a question and we don't know the answer rather than trying to fumble our way through some sort of answer and pretend like we've known it, um, you can just say, I'm not really sure. But here's what I think about what we can do here and now. And maybe here's what we'll do to try to to answer the question better as we go. And um, I just know through conversations with Quinn and John, um, you know, that's that's really the, the key reason why with, with these podcast episodes and what we try to do, we want to try to have at least a few actionable items to to offer people. I mean, none of us have all the answers. We, we definitely don't. We're still learning with every person we talk to and as we progress through our professional careers and personal lives. But we find it important to offer people some things and to acknowledge yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty, there are a lot of unknowns, and that's okay. And that's important to uh, to recognize and to weave into the process. But here's what we can focus on and here are maybe some ideas for systems we can put in place so we can get better and learn more. And it's this constant refinement process as we go forward. Well, I guess what I'd say there, if we were to come up with those suggestions, recommendations, I think the one thing that's fallen out of all the placebo and nocebo research is this is something really impactful that's always present but we don't take control of, or we don't try and modulate to our to, to to our clients athletes benefits we should to do that we need to understand how it operates now and we need to understand that we are agents of the placebo effectively if we are somebody who's trusted to deliver interventions we are agents of placebo, and it is nearly our job to amplify placebo, minimize no nocebo, 
in the realization that they're always there. And basically what it is, is it's just our interpretation of signals. Does this signal, whatever it is, instruction from the coach, uh, my belief about this exercise, or my not being sure of why we're doing this, if we can positively, if we can educate the athlete, uh, maybe educate isn't the right word, in a dialogue with the athlete, get the message across to the athlete that this is going to be good for you. This is better than we used to do. That is positive. You were getting easy gains there. If the athlete doesn't get that intervention, that 30 second explanation, they're going in there and they're thinking, why am I doing this? This kind of winds up my knee a little bit. I don't really like this. My buddy over there said they did this before and they felt no benefit. We're leaving it to chance. So, so that's the placebo thing, and we can't underestimate. I mean, if you if pretending that you got a surgery on your knee can make your knee pain go away, this isn't something we can ignore. Okay, so that's placebo. Um, with the stress, again, it, a lot of it comes from just the realization that stress isn't what happens to you. It's your interpretation of what happens to you. It's how you contextualize the meaning of what happened and how that meaning is likely to impede or not your future. And that's what it is. And in a sense, all of this is interpretation of meaning. All these signals, what do they mean for me? And I guess the last thing we we talk about, well, sorry, what I should have mentioned or reiterated about stress is stress being shown increases injury risk. Psychosocial stress, one of the biggest risk factors for sporting injuries. Again, sits outside of our biomedical understanding conventionally, but there you go. Stress impedes uh, rehabilitation in RTP, uh, increases uh, risk of illness. So there's a whole load of negatives if you don't take care of it. Um, the, the last thing then is, is more about the mindset research, which really is just saying that the frame through which you understand something really affects the outcomes of that something. And again, with the studies that have been done, um, Ali Akron is the researcher, Harvard, so some really good stuff, but short-lived interventions, educational, stress is debilitating, oh, you're right, it is, and my body responds by puking out stress, um, stress modulators, versus stress isn't debilitating, stress is productive, it's positive, it primes you for action, and you get positive outcomes. Surely these are things that we can be positively manipulating and building more into as, as fundamental parts of our practices and our processes. Don't let me ramble on here. <laughs> John, um, a common interpretation of this conversation in general, or especially when we talk about maximizing contextual effects or the placebo effect, is the support for complementary or alternative treatment strategies that have little to no evidence behind them in that, well, if a sham surgery does the trick, does it really matter what we do as long as our theatrics are on point or as long as we 
set the environment for the beliefs that we want. What's the response to that? Well, that's a brilliant question. Um, Thank you. Interesting. I saw you were thinking there for a while, so so that's what it was. Okay. Uh, um, when when Bruce Mosley did that 2002 studies with the knee arthroscopies, uh, there was a headline in the LA Times that said uh, knee surgery is useless, which completely missed the point. It's not that the knee surgery was useless. The knee surgery made people feel better. They, they had less pain at six months and at two years. It just didn't outperform placebo. So the assumption is like placebo is useless. Placebo isn't useless. It's a real thing in terms of it changes your neurochemistry, which changes your sub- subjective feeling. If you get less pain, do you care that it, it wasn't a, an active treatment? Well, I, I would doubt it. Um, so I kind of slid off your question there a little bit, but that popped into my head. So your your question again related to... Well, if, let's say training or in the clinic, if we have something like, uh, I don't even want to throw diagnoses out there, but something that we deem exercise or, or changing some physiological marker would have an effect on, and we have evidence to the efficacy of this loading program or this conditioning program versus uh, an alternative or complementary treatment or intervention that doesn't have evidence behind it, but the proponents of that alternative treatment would say, well, if we maximize the benefits, if we maximize the placebo benefits, the nonspecific effects, then we can potentially use whatever we want, and it doesn't actually matter what we do. What is your response to yeah. something like that? Thank you. Um, no, that's not the message I would take at all. And I, I would think we need to bear in mind that these are these are big studies. A couple, I think there might have been 450 or something in that knee surgery one, for example. But you can be sure that there were people there that benefited from the surgery that maybe wouldn't have benefited if they were in the placebo group. These are just averaged things. Do I feel that exercise selection or exercise design or exercise technique doesn't matter? No, I don't feel that way at all. I think it's it's fundamental. It's our responsibility to make sure everything is designed, you know, to be nailed on. And for us, us to believe in that um, it's just that I also think that the belief, the expectation on the athlete's behalf layered on top of that is the optimal setup to get the most benefits. But no, I don't think that, and I have heard a couple of researchers saying things like exercise is all possible, but I don't feel that way. And I still spend time trying to design exercises, you know, it, this realization about placebo uh, and, and so on d- doesn't change the time and the effort I put into designing an exercise. Uh, it just causes me to pause and realize that it's not enough to do that. I also have to portray to the athlete why I feel this will help them. And I need to get that message and get that understanding into their head. And if they don't agree with it, 
I need to extract that knowledge and then redesign because I'm not going to, even if I think it's great, I'm not going to enforce it in someone who doesn't believe in it because clearly from what we've talked about today, that's a ridiculous perspective. So did that, did that get to your question? So, like, this is the problem if we, if you know, this isn't about training or the precision of your training not being important. It's about we maximize everything we can maximize to do our job better. So we keep doing what we're doing from a mechanical perspective. Um, but we also up our game in terms of how I engender trust, belief, faith, positive expectation, a sense of resilience, a sense of I can cope, a sense of robustness to stress, uh, and that we help shape the correct mental frames for athletes to contextualize all these problems like fatigue, stress, competition, anxiety, those type of things. And we put processes in place that optimize communication, optimize understanding, optimize long-term education, optimize the, the to and fro of two-way communication, and that we're open to growing and learning alongside the athlete. No, that's great. And I asked that question to combat what we always hear is, even from clinicians, well, I don't care as long as it works. And that's such a nebulous, it's such a nebulous statement. And I don't think it, I don't think it respects what the conversation that we've just had. So your response there, I think really addressed that well. It's much more nuanced than just does it work or does it not? And it's not a call to action to ignore physiology. We are just kind of optimizing the scenario as best we can, you know, for the individual or for the group. So no, that was, that was great. Yeah, but it's just, there's just these additional variables that are modifiable that we haven't really factored into. Certainly in my world, our education is not to do with the emotional investment of the athlete. You know, it was just sets, reps, technique, yada, yada, yada. You know, that's that's part of the battle. It's not the full battle by a long shot. How are we doing? Oh, we're good. I get the... the sure. <laughs> the last thing I had was just... was is there Are there ways to measure or monitor this this belief or this buy-in, or is this much more of a subjective, because you can still quantify subjectivity, but is this much more of a feel-out process that's just inherent within the training process, or are there, are there ways to try to monitor that? Um, I, I guess I actually haven't given that a lot of thought. Um, it's probably a stupid question then. No, no, well, it's not... It's, it's not I think from an organization's point of view, it would be really important because what you want to do is mostly in, in my world, in elite sports, this isn't really done. No one does it, or very few, or it's introduced in a haphazard way. Um, but I would think there's a whole new set of 
how, like, for example, the last time we talked, we were talking about periodization, the design of planning, uh, you know, the, the, the planning of training. I think this, we totally neglect all of this. Where is, here's where I'm going to get the athlete feedback. Here's where I'm going to recalibrate with the, with the squad. Where does, how does that come into our planning context? It should, because it fundamentally influences the outcomes, the physical outcomes. The amount of weight on the bar will be influenced by how much you believe in your program after six weeks, without question. Where do we factor that into our planning paradigm? We don't. We should. How? Not sure. Let's evolve it. That's the only way we're gonna we're gonna find out. We need to. But I think we need to start thinking these thoughts and start introducing them into the the culture into our own practice and I think eventually they will evolve and that's my kind of get out of jail card for not having an answer to <laughs> well this is immediately one of my favorite shows alongside the other uh, episode that we had you on with if we, if we call the other episode periodization stress and uncertainty can we call this one placebo stress and uncertainty <laughs> I just think you should call it just rampant uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Confusion and uncertainty. I like it. Well, again, thank you so much. And if where can people connect with you? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Simply Sports. I, I, I have an Instagram account, but it, it, I think I might have two posts in the past nine months, so uh, not very productive there. Uh, my email, jcoyley at uclan.ac.uk. Uh, if anyone has anything nice to say, that'd be great. If you don't... Uh, Stay away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, ResearchGate page as well? Yes. We'll, yes, we'll link, have, okay. Yeah. And uh, we'll link that in the show notes as well. And I'm, you mentioned coordination, and I was going through your citation list yesterday. There's a, there's a couple papers that I haven't read yet. I think coordination might be the next, the next topic. I just I just uh, cornered you into a third appearance on the podcast, but well, I don't know. You have to listen back to this one first. I, I, I I'm not sure if this was a yeah yeah. I, I'm not sure how coherent I was today. I'm sorry. You kept us no. You kept us in line. It was a amazing well, conversation. You're kind of a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, John, Jared, anything to add on your end? John there's only another favorite for, for me too Ditto. a lot to chew on right now though my brain's still spinning <laughs> I can see it <laughs> thanks guys uh, I really appreciate it well thank you for your time and we really appreciate you coming on again and I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of this John Jared thanks flag John flag thanks again uh, always as, as for joining me on the show and, and keeping me in line and We'll see everybody next time. We'd like to thank John Kiley for coming back on the show. You can check out the show notes for links to John's contact info. We highly recommend following his work. 
We'd like to thank the show sponsors, Rehab to Perform and AP Analytics. Check out the show notes to find their links and check out what they have to offer. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into this community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes all of our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.